0: Well, we are once again talking about the subject of submission. And you know, there are certain words that when you hear them, they can just come across as being hard to deal with. Kind of harsh. Words that may be great at you when you hear them. For instance, the word foreclosure. I mean, that's always, uh, no one wants to hear that. Or the word fired. You know, you don't want to hear that word either. Or the word inoperable. Those are always harsh words. Well, oftentimes, this word submission is also hard because it naturally grates against our idea of freedom. I mean, this is America, right? We're the, you know, the land of the free and the home of the brave. And even as Christians, we love to celebrate our liberty, our freedom in Christ, but, but don't talk to us about submission. But in reality... Peter here is showing us that submission is actually a Jesus thing. We saw this last week in verse 16 where he said that we are free. There's a freedom that we have in Christ, but we are also slaves of God. And so we noted this, that submission in every form, no matter what we're talking about, it really starts with being submitted to Jesus. Being submitted to His will and His word and His way. So it's a Jesus thing, but Peter is also showing us here that submission in the right setting and for the right reasons is also commendable to God. And it's a good witness which is the theme of this section that we've been in for the last several weeks, that really the key verse we saw was back in verse 12, where Peter said this, having your conduct honorable, honorable among the Gentiles. It's all about our witness. It's about living in a way that is going to bring glory to God. So last time we looked at submission in relationship to the government. When to submit? Why we're to submit? What are the instances where we don't submit? And today we're going to be looking at submission in the workplace. And we see the principle here in verse 18 when he says, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear. Fear here is actually the word respect. So it's being respectful. It's working in a a respectful type of way. And he's talking here about slaves, and historians tell us that at the time of this writing in the Roman Empire, there were actually 60 million slaves in the empire, and in the Roman Empire, slaves were not considered to be people, but to be tools. In fact, the Greek philosopher Aristotle, you know, people love to quote Aristotle, they think Aristotle was really cool, but this is his view on human rights. He said, a slave is a living tool, and a tool is an inanimate. Slave. That's his view, a viewpoint that he had on slaves. One of the Roman noblemen named Varro said this: "The only thing that distinguishes a slave from a beast or a cart is that a slave can talk." That's the low view that they had of those who were slaves in the empire. There was another author who recommended that if you were going to buy a farm, that you should toss out the old slaves to die because they're just broken. So as a slave living in the Roman Empire, you didn't have any rights at all. And get this, if a slave ran away and he was caught, they would take that slave and they would brand with a hot iron right on his forehead an F. Didn't mean that he failed the test, but it literally stood for fugitive so that anybody that saw him would know that he was a runaway slave and they would treat him uh, poorly because of that. In fact, a runaway slave could actually be killed with no trial whatsoever. So it was a very, very hard life. Now, here's the thing I want you to understand, though. You know, the Bible never, ever condones slavery. And when you read in the Bible about slavery, it's never condoning it, but what the Bible is doing, it's just recording it. It's recording that it was part of the social norm at that particular time. In a similar way, when the Bible talks about polygamy, you know, men like Jacob and David who had more than one wife, the Bible is never ever condoning that, but it's simply recording that, hey, this is what was going on in that culture at that time. And so the Bible, when talking about slavery, it's never condoning it, but it's just recording what was happening. And when it comes to the subject of slavery, this is what we need to know. The gospel of Jesus Christ would actually help to eradicate slavery. And we see a beautiful picture of this in the book in our Bibles called Philemon. And Philemon was a guy who was a friend of the Apostle Paul. And Philemon had a slave whose name was Onesimus. And one day Onesimus ran away. And he made his way to Rome, and in Rome, he somehow, for some reason, gets arrested. He gets put in prison. And who does he meet in prison? None other than the Apostle Paul. And as he's with Paul in prison, he actually ends up giving his life to the Lord. And so when his jail sentence, when Onesimus' jail sentence was over and it's time for him to go home, Paul sends him home with this letter that he has written that is now a book in our Bible, the book Philemon. He sends that, that letter home with Onesimus to give to Philemon. Now picture this. Here comes his runaway slave and he hands him this letter and says, this is from the apostle Paul. And, and, and Paul, or Philemon opens the letter up and he starts to read it and he's looking at Onesimus and he's reading the letter. And this is what Paul says to him. He says, I want you to receive Onesimus, but not back as a slave, but I want you to receive him back as a brother. In other words, don't brand him with a giant F on his forehead, but throw your arms around him and receive him as a brother in the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean that Onesimus still wasn't going to work for Philemon. No, he would do that because, you see, slaves were actually the workforce in the Roman Empire. In fact, most of the teachers and doctors and managers, even actors and musicians were all slaves. So Onesimus is still going to have a job working for Philemon, but their relationship now is going to be completely different. That's what the gospel does, that they're going to be now brothers in the Lord. In fact, in that culture at this time, masters and slaves could be going to the same church. I mean, think about this, your slave could be your home group leader, you know, at the church. I mean, how awkward would that be? I mean, that's kind of the setting and what was happening. And so the Christians, both the masters and the slaves, were, were having to learn how to navigate these waters. But that's what the gospel does. It it brings about a dignity. It just restores dignity to people. Now, the problem that Peter is addressing here seems to be in the context of a Christian slave who is working for an unbelieving master. And Peter instructs that slave that he needed to be in submission to his master, whether he was good and gentle or even if he was harsh. And the word harsh that he uses here is interesting. It speaks of someone who is crooked and bent. You know, some people are just really twisted, aren't they? Some people are just all twisted up like a human pretzel. They've been bent by life. They've been bent by sin. And so their outlook is twisted. And so because of that, their dealings with others are twisted. How many of you know somebody like that? Somebody who's just been twisted, bent by life. And so they treat people in just a a wrong way. And and a lot of it has to do with just you know how twisted they are. Now, in those days, there weren't workers' unions. There weren't HR departments to complain to. And slaves couldn't go on strike. And so Peter instructs these servants to be in submission to their master, or he would instruct us, be in submission to your boss, even when he's a jerk, even when he's harsh. And the word submissive submissive here is very graphic. It means to rank yourself under someone else in order to lift them up and to build them up. In other words, place yourself under that person to lift them higher. And Peter gives us two main reasons for doing this. The first we see in verse 19 is he says, this is commendable to God. In fact, I want to read you verse 19 and 20 in the New Living Translation. It'll be on the screen. He says, for God is pleased when conscious of his will you patiently endure unjust treatment of course you get no credit for being patient if you are beaten for doing wrong but if you suffer for doing good and endure it patiently god is pleased with you the word commendable here literally means praiseworthy it's praiseworthy to god when you suffer for injustice, when you suffer for doing good, God looks on you with favor and dispenses his grace into your life to help bear you, help you bear up underneath that pressure. That's what this idea means. Now maybe some of you here, you work for a boss who is difficult. Catch this. When you endure that with a good attitude, it's praiseworthy to God. And he is going to supply you with a daily supply of his grace to bear you up under that situation. But here's the flip side. Peter says that if you are punished for doing wrong, if you're punished for being a lousy worker, you cut corners, you're not finishing the job, you get in trouble. There's nothing praiseworthy about that at all. In fact, I read this week of a pretty intensive Survey that was done where they discovered that American workers admitted, in this survey, they admitted to goofing off at work 20% of the time. I mean, think about that. That's one whole day per week. And those in the survey, they admitted to just goofing off, spending time on the job, you know, browsing the web, on social media, making personal calls, you know, taking extra long lunches or breaks. 20% of their time on the job was spent on personal matters that had nothing to do with their job. And I just gotta say this, that should never be the case with somebody who's a Christian somebody who's a, a follower of Jesus Christ. In fact, I believe that we should be the best workers in any company that we are working in. These are two verses that have really served me well in the places that, that I have worked. I've kind of lived by and stood on these. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 17, we're told this, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, we're told whatever you do, do all. Everybody say do all do all to the glory of God. Now listen, when you work with that type of mentality, your bosses will take notice. When you work with that type of mentality, your bosses will look at somebody, they'll look at you as somebody that they can trust. And you will be rewarded. And others will take notice as well. You know, my grandson... He loves to ask this question. He'll ask this question probably 20 times during the day, and he kind of says it in a way like a New Yorker would. He say, he'll, he'll say, Poppy, what are you doing? He kind of says that. What are you doing? And it reminded me of a, a story of a little boy who came upon three workers who were working on a building. They were laying brick. And the little boy walks up to the first guy and he's like, what are you doing? And, and that guy says, you know, I'm laying bricks with, with kind of a scowl. Like, don't bug me, kid. He goes up to the second guy and says to him, you know, what are you doing? And that, that guy says, you know, I'm earning a living. But when he went to the third guy and he asked him, he said, what are you doing? That man said, I'm building a building, a church where people are going to come and worship God. Because that's what they were doing. They were building a church. And that little boy made this observation. He said, That man seemed really, really happy about what he was doing. You see, it's all about perspective, it's all about our approach. Who are we doing it for? And so the first reason for submitting in the workplace that Peter gives here is when our, even when our boss is tough to deal with, he says, because it's commendable, you do that because it's commendable before God. But the second reason is even greater. He says in doing so, we're actually following the example of Christ. Look at verse 21 again. He says, for to this you were called he's saying in other words this is your calling as a christian because christ also suffered for us leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps who committed no sin nor was deceit found in his mouth now the word that peter uses here for example is very vivid The Greek word is hupogrammos, from which we get our English word grammar from, and it means literally writing under. And it describes the way that, that kids in that culture would learn their ABCs. They would learn how to write their letters, is that he would take a piece of parchment and they would put it over the letters and those kids would trace the letters. And that's how they learn to write their letters and learn their ABCs. And this is what Peter has in mind. He's saying Jesus Christ is the one by whom we trace the behavior of our lives, whether in Good times or in bad times. We're tracing the way that Jesus lived and the way that Jesus walked. And so the reason why we put up with and endure harsh circumstances and harsh people is because Jesus did. In fact, the text literally says that we're following in His steps. We're following in His footprints. It's like the picture of the the dad who's walking in the snow and behind him is his son. And his son with his little feet is stepping into his dad's big footprints. And as we go through life, we're following in the footsteps, the footprints of Jesus. You know that song that we sing sometimes, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. Do we really mean that? Because if you think about it, where are the footsteps of Jesus? Where are they taking us? To Calvary. They're taking us to the cross. Jesus says, anybody that wants to follow me, let him deny himself. Pick up his cross and follow me. That's who can be my disciple. And so it's realizing as I'm walking with Jesus that suffering is going to be a part of that. Difficulty is going to be a part of that. Persecution is going to be a part of that. And Peter here wants us to notice how Jesus suffered. There's four things I want you to take note of here that he mentions. Number one, he didn't fight back. He says when, when they were reviling against him, there in verse 23, that he didn't revile in return. The word revile means to rail on someone. And Jesus really dealt with that his whole life. It started when he was a kid because of Mary getting pregnant Now, she was pregnant by God, in case you don't know the story. But, you know, she gets pregnant before she's married. And so Jesus grows up, and everybody is referring to him as an illegitimate child. In his ministry, they accused him of blasphemy many times. They mocked him. When he was on the cross, they were mocking him. But he never, ever fought back. He never railed against his accusers. Not only that, number two, Peter says he didn't even threaten Jesus, when he's hanging there on the cross, he doesn't look down at those who are mocking him and say, wait till after the resurrection. I know where all you guys live. No, he didn't say that. (laughs) He didn't threaten them. He didn't threaten to come after them. Now, it wasn't like he didn't have backup, right? I mean, he had backup. Think about it. When they came to arrest him, Remember, Peter takes out his sword, and he's like, I'll protect you. And Jesus is like, Peter, put away your sword. He goes, don't you know, I could call 12 legions of angels down right now to help me if I wanted to. And a Roman legion was 5,200 soldiers. So Jesus is saying, look, I could call over 62,000 angels right now to come down and protect me if I wanted to. And he didn't even need the angels. Jesus could have just spoke and obliterated all of them with his mouth. That's the kind of power that he had. But he didn't do that. He didn't revile. He didn't threaten. In fact, Jesus said nothing until they're on the cross. Remember what he said when he finally spoke? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Are you serious? Like, come on. That's, that's how he responds. That's what he says in that moment. Father, forgive them. Which is no, which no doubt to me is one of the reasons why that thief on the cross had a change of heart. I mean, early on, as they were hanging there, he was with everybody else mocking Jesus. But then he hears that. And he's looking at Jesus and he's like, he's never seen anybody handle this kind of suffering with such dignity. And he has a complete change of heart, complete 180. And he looks at Jesus and he says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says to him, today you're going to be with me in paradise. Because he saw in Jesus something that he had never, ever seen before. Jesus didn't revile, he didn't fight back, he didn't threaten, he didn't seek to get even. But that's our dilemma, isn't it? I mean, if we're honest, it's a lot more fun to get even than it is to forgive, isn't it? Some of you are looking at me like, Pastor Robbie, I have no idea what you're talking about. I'm always loving and forgiving. (laughs) No, you're not. Um, (laughs) It's a lot more fun to get even if it was me on the cross, I probably would have said, Father, fry them. You know? <laughs> Father, flatten them. I don't deserve this. You know? Get them right now. That's our natural tendency. Our natural tendency is to want to fight back. There was a maid who was working for a large estate. And this family was just a bunch of ungrateful, spoiled brats. And one day they fired her just for no reason whatsoever. So she's packing up her stuff. She's heading out the door. And as she stopped, and they were all watching her as she left, she took out a $5 bill, threw it down to their dog Fido. And they they looked at her like, what's that for? And she says, I never forget a friend. And I'm just telling him thank you for all the times that he helped me wash your dishes. (laughs) And I bet it felt really good for her to say that, you know? So like we're laughing. It's like we can imagine. That would have felt really, really good to, to say that. But that's not the way of Jesus. He didn't fight back. He didn't threaten. Why? Well, this is point number three. Verse 23, it says, he committed himself to God. Puts it this way. He committed himself to him who judges righteously. And this is the picture that Peter's painting. With every insult that was leveled on Jesus, he said, Father, I'm committing that to you with every abusive word that was spoken at him, he said, Lord, I'm giving that to you. With every time they punched him in the face, he said, Lord, Father, I'm giving that to you. With the snap of the whip that cracked against his back, ripping open his flesh with every single lash of the 39 lasses, Jesus was saying, Father, I commit that to you over and over and over repeatedly until finally on the cross jesus said father into your hands i commit now my spirit and he breathed his last and died guys it's so important hear me on this it's so important that we learn to do the same thing we live in a fallen world with fallen people who do things and say things that are very, very hurtful. And if we don't learn to put those things into the hands of our Heavenly Father, who judges justly, this is what's going to happen, you'll become a very bitter person. Bitterness will literally tear you apart. And bitterness, the Bible says, not only tears you apart and destroys you, but it defiles everybody around you. I mean, think about it. We've all seen it. Think about how many relationships get torn apart by anger and holding on to grudges. It's like I'm just holding on to my little friend, my grudge here. I'm nursing it and you know, feeding it like a pet. And, and we do that. We need to think again and commit it to the Lord. To commit that situation, to give it to God, knowing and trusting that He's going to deal with that situation and that person in His perfect timing. Now, Peter also tells us the reason. That Jesus did this. This is number four. We see in verse 24 that he saw the big picture. Look at verse 24. It says, Who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but now have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Jesus knew the purpose of his suffering. He submitted to his suffering because he knew the purpose of it. He knew that this is what it was going to accomplish. That you and I could experience our sins being forgiven. That we were like those sheep that had gone astray, that had ran from God, but God in his love pursued us by sending his son Jesus to come to this earth and become one of us so that he could go to the cross and die in our place and take the punishment that we deserve so that we could be healed of our hurts and have our sins forgiven and our guilt removed and brought into a right relationship with God where now Jesus would be our shepherd and Jesus said I'm the good shepherd who lays down my life for the sheep that's who he desires to be in our lives He loves us and he cares about us and he gave himself for us. And so Jesus endured all this because he knew the bigger purpose that it was going to mean salvation to anyone who would put their faith and trust in him. And this is the point that Peter's making by using this analogy. Don't miss this. You see, if we respond to those who treat us badly the way that everyone else in the world does... No one's going to see Jesus in that. No one will see the difference. No one will be drawn to Christ. We will not be living in a way that is honorable amongst unbelievers. If we're just like everybody else in fighting back and reviling and threatening... No one sees Jesus in us. But if we can follow the example of Jesus, people who don't know Jesus will see something in us as his followers that they don't see anywhere else in the entire world. And they'll see the difference and the honor and the beauty and the dignity and they will be drawn to Christ. This is the point that Peter's making. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, Pastor Rob... I get this. I understand what you're saying, but I'm just not that spiritual. I can't do this. And believe me, I get it. You see, my natural tendency is to complain about the government, my natural tendency is to not respect the man or the office. My natural tendency isn't to suffer patiently when I am being reviled. I want to revile back when somebody comes against me or someone in my family. I want to come at them with both barrels. And my natural tendency, I don't want to commit things into the hands of the one who judges justly. It takes too long. You know, I don't want to do that. (laughs) I want action now. I want vengeance now. That's my natural tendency. But this is what I want to leave you with. Don't miss this. Jesus is not just our example. He's our supplier. He's not just our example. He's the one who empowers us. If Jesus is just your example, this is discouraging because on my own, I can't do this. But this is the beauty of the Christian life. This is what Easter is all about. This is what we're celebrating, not just at Easter, but we should be celebrating every single day is he is risen, he's alive. And that means he, he is living in you by his Holy Spirit. And Paul would say the same power that brought Jesus Christ out of the grave is now available to you to live and to walk, to live for him. Notice what Peter says again in verse 24. Catch this who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, he's connecting us here to Jesus, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness. Here's what he's telling us. When Jesus died, you died with him. You died to your sins. You died to your natural fleshly tendencies. But then he says, having died to sins, that we might live for righteousness. And I want you to note this, circle this. The word might there in verse 24 is not passive. In other words, he's not saying like it's a 50-50 chance. Like that maybe you'll be able to do this. No, the word is active, not passive. And the idea is, he's saying, that he did this. He, we've died to sins so that you can now live for righteousness because his power lives inside of you. You live for righteousness because he empowers you by his Holy Spirit. It really takes us back to what we saw in the very beginning of our study in 1 Peter. There in chapter 1, verse 3 where Peter says we've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And oftentimes when we hear that, we think of that living hope as heaven, and it definitely involves that, but it's so much more than that. You see, the word hope speaks of an absolute expectation of coming good. And here's what that means. It means that everything that Jesus has ever said, everything that Jesus has ever promised us as his followers, we can bank on that. It's the absolute expectation of coming good because Paul said that all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. And guess where you are at today? If you know Jesus, you have been placed in Christ. And so those promises are yours. That's your hope. That's the absolute expectation of coming good that you have to look forward to in every situation that you can bank on this and the difficulties in the battle. in, In Ephesians chapter 6 verse 10, this is our hope. We're told that we can be strong in the power that is in Christ Jesus, that we can stand strong in his power. In the difficulties that we are going through in these tough situations, we can, we can know this. Romans 8.37 tells us that we're more than conquerors through him, through Jesus, who loved us. When we feel like we have been abandoned, we can, this is our absolute expectation of coming good. Hebrews 13.5 tells us that he will never leave you nor forsake you. He hasn't abandoned you. You're not abandoned. He's with you. And we can stand in this absolute expectation of coming good in this hope in knowing Philippians 1.6 that he who has begun this good work in us is going to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Can I get an amen to that? <laughs> As we wrap up, here's the deal. Maybe you are in a situation right now that is hard. Maybe you're in a situation right now that you're having a hard time submitting to. Or you're in a situation that you're having a hard time just submitting to, to God's will. You're, you're wrestling with, with taking and doing what Jesus did and committing whatever it is that you've been holding on to and committing that to God, to Him who judges justly. And you're, you're having a hard time with that. And I want to encourage you today put it in His hands to give it to Him. You see, the Bible says this, that if we humble ourselves before him, that he'll lift us up, that he'll exalt us. The Bible says that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And we need more grace. And one of the ways that we humble ourselves is by simply admitting, God, I can't do this. Lord, I can't do this on my own. Lord, I can't carry this. Lord, I'm having a really hard time in this situation. And so today, as we close, I'm going to ask Zach and Abby to come back up right now. And as we take this time to to close out, we're going to have just some little extended time of worship. And I want to invite you, those of you who are find yourself in a place where you're having a hard time submitting, to a situation or to an individual or you're having a hard time you're wrestling with putting something into the hands of the Lord that you've just been holding on to it I want to encourage you right now in this moment as we begin to just take some time to worship to get up out of your seat and in an act of humility to just come and kneel down on this padded carpet up front here to kneel down before the Lord and say, God, here's this thing that I've been wrestling with. I'm committing it to you today. Just like Jesus did. I'm committing it to you today. Lord, here's this situation. Here's this person. Here's this thing that I've been battling. God, I need your help. I'm, I'm admitting today. This is my humility. I'm admitting I can't do it. And just come and kneel down before the Lord here and just say, God, I'm placing my heart, I'm placing this situation in your hands and as you do that some of our pastors and some of our elders are going to just come up behind you they're just going to lay hands on you they're going to pray over you that god's grace would meet you right now in this moment that it would be showered upon you as we worship the lord together in this time amen let's pray father we thank you so much for the example of jesus But even more so, we thank you that Jesus is our supplier. That he's the one who empowers us. That your grace is sufficient. And so right now, Lord, in this time, in this moment, we want to just bring our hearts and bring our needs and bring these situations. And we want to just bring ourselves and lay ourselves at your feet today. And lay these situations at your feet today to humble ourselves today that you might pour your grace upon us, that you might meet us right now in this moment. And so, Lord, we give you this time now. In Jesus' name, amen.